Hello there, I'm Patrick Struff, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Heather Madlin, who serves as partner of business development at Huron Capital. Based in Detroit, Huron Capital brings a Midwestern perspective and Motown metal to companies committed to the next level of excellence and growth. Heather, it is a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Patrick, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, before we get into the Midwestern magic that you guys can deploy at Huron <laughs> Capital, let's start with you. Give us a perspective. Tell us what brought you to this point in your career. Oh, boy. Um, I'll give you the the short version because I think folks know me well enough to know I like to talk. So I'll go all the way back to my birth. No, I'm just kidding. Um, kind of, though, I will. Um, fun fact about me, because it actually sets the stage well for, I think, where I where I have excelled in my career. But I'm a quadruplet. So mm-hmm. I have two sisters and a brother. Patrick, did you know that about me? I didn't know that. That's okay. We learn things and we've known each other for five years. Okay. I know. I know. So I was uh, one of four. My mother thought she was having triplets and, you know, my sister was hiding and she ended up with four. Mm-hmm. So I like to tell people I learned at a very early age how to use my voice and speak mm-hmm. up. And I think that that has helped me in my professional career. Yeah. Um, I started out as a liberal arts major um, at college at Cornell University. And so big shout out to liberal arts. Um, My managing partner, Jim Mahoney, and I joke about this all the time that you just got to learn how to write, be critical thinkers, have a passion for learning. And and really, that set a fantastic foundation for my my career in finance, believe it or not. Mm. Um, And so coming out of... um, Cornell, I went into a credit training program at Comerica Bank in Detroit. And fast forward, you know, 15 years, I spent, you know, time in Chicago and San Francisco on the debt side of the balance sheet working uh, for finance companies and commercial banks financing uh, leveraged buyout transactions for middle market private equity firms. And fun fact, my very first LBO was for Huron Capital. It was York Label. Uh, One of their first deals out of Fund One in 2001, their largest debt transaction to date then that they had closed, and they were five people. Wow. And, you know, uh, one of my my big things about my career and keeping in touch with people is don't burn bridges. And so, you know, we've kept in touch over the years, and I guess, you know, my, my career came full circle back to Detroit, Michigan. I... So... My my first 15 years was really all on the debt side, but it went from execution and underwriting to leveraging my voice and my mm-hmm. uh, my uh, personality, I guess, um, into more of a business development role in debt. And then, you know, came home to Michigan, joined Huron in 2013, which is almost 10 years ago, and yeah. joined the equity side, um, deal sourcing and running marketing communications. And um, I've got, got a lot of hats, but uh, it's been quite the journey. And now the the world of private equity was a lot smaller when Huron Capital opened up. And, and so it, it's gone through a lot of changes. But before we get into that, let's talk about Huron Capital. I mean, first of all, the nice thing is that it wasn't named after the founders, like virtually every law firm out there, <laughs> pretty much every insurance brokerage too. But, you know, give us a story about Huron, how it was named, and then and then just a quick history. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I appreciate you pronouncing it correctly, Patrick. A lot of uh, folks on the coasts, you know, Huron is is an unknown, um, mm-hmm. unknown to them. So, but to those of us in the Midwest, given our roots here, um, we all live in the greater Huron Valley. For mm-hmm. those um, for those listeners that don't know, uh, we're part of um, the Huron Valley, Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois. And so it was a shout out to our Midwestern roots. And it's also referenced to Lake Huron which is right in our backyard as well as one of the great lakes. Yes. So not, not that, not that complicated, pretty straightforward, but it's um, yeah, we've always been here on Capitol. I was founded founding partner was Brian Demkowitz. He joined us from, uh, from Chicago at the time. And we uh, you know, we've raised over a billion eight um, across six funds since 1999. I, you know, am proud of the fact that we have been around for more than 20 years. I think, we're in rare air a bit. Yes. Many private equity firms don't make it as long as we have. And I'm just very proud of the fact that um, the team has stuck together and, um, you know, has uh, has been together that long. Well, and the, the, the default that a lot of people think when you've been around for 20 years, you must be this massive institution looking <laughs> at mega deals and, you know, the quite the contrary. You, you're lower middle market. Let's talk about that. Why for so long have you stayed in that space and not, you know, expanded as a lot of other firms do and go up market? Look, I mean, I think really early on, we were one of the very first firms to um, to jump onto this buy and build concept mm. of making add-on acquisitions. And for our entire history, we have been focused on professionalizing founder-owned businesses and getting them ready to scale through M&A. That has been our MO over and over again since the day we were founded. Uh, we have closed at this point over 450 transactions and true to the buy and build focus of ours, uh, over 70% of those were add-ons to about 57 platforms um, since, since the day we opened our doors. So it's a strategy that we um, have been employing over and over again. And when you target founder-owned businesses, and for the value creation levers that we're really good at, you know, augmenting the management teams, building out a sales structure, you know, professionalizing the finance uh, department, mm-hmm. really bringing that, um, you know, we, we call it finishing school is how mm-hmm. we like to talk about it. Yeah. Um, lots of founder owners wear a lot of hats. Yeah. And when you want to grow and accelerate growth, um, you know, you got to be able to have uh, people who own various parts of the business. And, and that's really what we're good at, Patrick, in, in, in what we have done so, so many times over the years. And in the lower middle market, there is such an opportunity from a size perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think our approach, our Midwestern values, um, the way that we treat our own people, our management teams and, and their employees, you know, we do the right thing. We're, we're good folks over here. And that really resonates with founder owners. Um, when they're really looking for the right partner to grow their business and take it to the next level. Um, you can't quantify that. You can't, you know, put a multiple on that. But, you know, with a lot of private equity firms out there today and lots of capital, I think, you know, that has been our number one differentiator as a firm. A couple of observations, and I think that you can't measure it, but it, it's true about when you speak with anybody from the Midwest you know, they say what they mean, they mean what they say, that resonates, there's a connection that you can make, because remember, you know, 
mergers and acquisitions aren't all the, the types of deals that we hear about in the Wall Street Journal, whereas Amazon buying Whole Foods. It's not company A, company B. Yeah. It is a group of people agreeing to partner with another group of people. And hopefully the combination one plus one equals five or six. And so you can't get that human element out of it. So I think that's a, a great way. And I can we assume that it, you're not exclusive to the Midwest. Your region is all over the place, but a Indeed. lot of what you do is in is in the middle of the country. Yeah, I mean, we we certainly um, we resonate. Our approach resonates with okay. founder owners and and other advisors in the Midwest. But you know, we do deals all over the country um, and have for our twenty plus year history. And, and I think this is what's important. Why I really wanted to highlight uh, here on Capital because we've known each other for over five years now, and I've only been in M and A that long. Um, but where where it comes in is that you've got a lot of these companies and owners and founders, they get to that inflection point where, you know, they're they're too big to be small, but they're too small to be enterprise. And where do we take the next step? And they have no idea of, you know, the skill set that's necessary to go from $20 million in revenue to $100 million. It's a completely different skill set, new team members. And there's organizations out there like yours that are dedicated to that segment of the market, not just size, but culture wise. And I think that's invaluable because the alternative is you default to a strategic maybe or a, like a massive strategic or you default to an institution that may not have your best interests at heart. That's so, right. Yeah, that's right. And so I'd say, let, let's talk about this, you know, uh, you had mentioned a couple of things in there, but I really want to highlight, particularly with the executive staff and the training there, is what are some of the things that Huron Capital brings to the table for lower middle market companies? Sure. So, you know, we, um, and we, we'll talk about this a little bit, but we've recently gone through um, a honing of our investment strategy to be more focused on services, specific services sectors. Okay. It's an area that we have spent a lot of the last five or six years playing in. So in some ways, it was more of an acknowledgement for what we've already been doing. But in a market that is flush with cash and thousands of private equity firms, mm -hmm. you know, it really resonates with people when you have a sector focus or a specialization. Mm -hmm. And we go to market through the investment team who um, provide dedicated sector coverage. So there's 10 sectors. I'm not going to go through them, but they're focused broadly across um, commercial and industrial services, professional services, and, and uh, consumer services. And when you're sitting in front of a founder owner, you know, and you're bringing an executive from the industry that has built the largest public company in its market, wow. right? Or... You know, you're asking questions that other private equity firms or other buyers aren't asking. You know, you 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 show them that you really understand their industry, their business, and their market, and that goes a really long way in terms of building that partnership and relationship that I was talking about before. That is so important, you know, in a process. Yeah, and I think that that has really um, driven a lot of great success in terms of getting founder owners to say yes to us. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been great. And I would say the other area where, you know, we sort of combine this, you know, people focus in our services and our sector focus is in a really unique program that we call Exec Factor. Mm. Yes. If anything, we're going to start doing more of these, but as part of our, our strategy evolution, 
we doubled down on this exec factor strategy. And it it's simply CEO and or thesis first. So lots of private equity firms get a deal on their desk, just like I'm a business development professional. Yep. I get you know 10 to 20 deals a day and flipping through it, figuring out whether we like it or not. This is the opposite. This is taking you know the secular trends that we're seeing, the executive networks that we're building and leveraging, the thought leadership that we have in our areas of focus. And it's it's deriving themes and theses from those sectors like facility services where you know yeah. we have a very strong track record or environmental services. And you know, it's 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 partnering a thesis with a CEO and underwriting that thesis almost like we would underwrite a company and diligence a company, but before we even know what company we're gonna buy. So we're pre-committing capital against a management team and a thesis, and we're going to market looking for a company. And when you approach a business owner with you know a holding company that has been established and a thesis and you know a management team and, and operating resources, I mean that is that is huge. And I think that puts us um, we punch above our weight when wow. we sit down with the business owner with a fifteen million dollar revenue business. I mean. That is a very differentiated approach in this market, especially the lower middle market, where we're, you know, we're willing to start small, you know, and professionalize and build out a corporate infrastructure, uh, investing in the business and seeing that EBITDA, like the J curve, almost go down before we start, it starts going up, right? And taking some risk, but are comfortable doing it because we know that industry so well after underwriting it. So that's huge, you know, that's a huge differentiation to founder owners, particularly in the lower middle market. Well, I had two questions from that, but I, the one thing that really struck me is how the focus on service, the service sector. And I think that's just so forward thinking because a lot of our guests, and we've been involved with a lot of people that are focusing on manufacturing. And since four years ago, there was this, you know, renaissance of manufacturing back in the U.S., but for mm-hmm. every manufacturer, there are several services that they that they rely on, and sure. so, and I can see because there there's the the macro direction that a lot of people are thinking is we're no longer manufacturing; we're into servicing and professional services. While manufacturing is coming back, the service sector is still just. I, I would say wide open. I think you guys are really ahead of the curve on that. That's really really impressive. Yeah, well, private equity is nothing but opportunistic. And yeah, so innovation you know, we, comes, yeah, innovation comes very, very quickly out there. And I think the pandemic drove a lot of that. And um, you know, and I'll give you a great example. Mm. Residential services is an area we've been investing in for several years. We own a company called Hansons here in Michigan, which is, you know, we'd love to own more businesses in Michigan, but that's the mm. only one we have right now. And we replace uh windows, siding, and roofing. Um you know, for, for homes. And it's I'm really sure that all, happens a lot in your climate. Yes. Yeah. It's all replacement, right? These yeah. aren't new homes being constructed, but when you have a leak in your roof and that roof just has to go, it, it's got to go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we knew that there was a lot of activity in this resi HVAC and plumbing. Mm-hmm. So the interior of the home versus the exterior of the home, but that market has just gotten so overheated and competitive mm-hmm. and the multiples there have been rising quite dramatically, even in, the uncertain economic environment we're in. And so we took a different perspective. We sat down and part of our thought leadership in Resi Services was like, let's do a scrum session around what are all the services that, you know, we as homeowners use and need. 
And with the millennial, you know, the millennial population getting ready to buy their first homes, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a very much a do it for me culture versus it's not a DIY DIY anymore. (laughs) So what are we having done at our homes that, you know, we can really look at? And so we made an investment recently in a company called Xperia Green, which does lawn care services Mm -hmm. for residential um, properties in the Midwest. And I'm not talking about kind of the commoditized mow and blow mow and service. Blow, like, we have in California, small mow and blow. Yeah. It's all mow and blow, right? This is weed and feed. I mean, we mm. got we got lots of um well, yeah, lots of that going on here. It's pest control, it's aeration, it's fertilization, it's tree and shrub sh- services. Okay. And and so that's been, I mean, that's a subscription-based model with a with a high recurring service recurring revenue, yeah. and a high retention of customers. Mm. And and we partnered with our operating partner in Resi Services, Dave Alexander, who turned around True Green from negative yeah. EBITDA to over a hundred million in EBITDA. Wow. And we partnered with the management team out of Scott's Lawn Care that built that business, then sold it to True Green. Yeah. And um, and that's the management team for Exec Factor, right? And wow. we're willing to buy something really small um, and take advantage of the market dynamics and this fantastic leadership team to scale a business quickly. Well, and it's great because you don't have to be this, you know, well-established platform to be attractive to Huron Capital because as you're buying build, there are there are a lot of smaller players that are out there that can tremendously benefit just like their larger uh, brothers and sisters out there with getting that in. So I, I think just Indeed. think you're opening the portal wider than than some of the others out there. But it is fascinating. Like you hear about HVAC and plumbing all day now, yeah. um, but you are starting to read about several private equity backed lawn care platforms now. Yes. And so while we never like being, you know, venture capital investors and you always pause when you're the first one into a sector, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we like being at the early end versus already there's 50 private equity platforms that yeah. we compete against for add-ons. You know, this is where we, we came in a little bit earlier, but that's all because of our focus and thought leadership and being able to identify opportunities um, and niches early, earlier than the next private equity and firm. And so. you've got all those all those service platforms going. So I, I think that's just this is why we want to highlight this to, to get this out to to the world. And 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 I really appreciate this. Yeah. You know, there has been uh, a development in, you know, in M&A sector with regard to insurance, because the, the issue is just. How do we transfer risk as as much as we can? And and there's been a product called reps and warranties insurance, which has really, you know, assisted in the acceleration of of the processes. And, you know, they've delivered a lot of that added value. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Heather, (laughs) good, good, bad or indifferent. What is your capital's experience with rep and warranty? Oh, it's it's fantastic. It's a fantastic tool that we certainly leverage you know, quite often, especially for platform investments and larger add-on investments, you know, and and especially when the seller is pushing for it and we could say, no problem, we got this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really does, um, you know, it. we evaluate using it based on a number of factors, you know, seller preference, which is most often the case, frankly, they're protecting themselves from future, you know, liability indemnities that may may come up. Um, it could be our preference. It could be driven by deal size and timeline. You know, it can save a lot of time in a transaction when you've sort of pre-negotiated those reps and warranties, right? Mm-hmm. And don't have to deal with it in the purchase agreement. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you want to see how many third parties you have involved in a transaction and what the deal process looks like. Is it a differentiator because others aren't doing it? And so absolutely a tool that we use. I can't say we do it for every transaction, but absolutely the larger ones and and ones where, you know, where it matters and where it's useful. I'm just the the vast majority of the acquisitions you are dealing with owners founders that are going to transition over or do you have a lot of people that are looking for an exit what's the what's the balance oh the vast majority are transitioning they're rolling over a portion of their equity to to get that second second bite at the apple for sure perfect and that that's where I think that I always thought of rapid warranty as just a real elegant solution because the last thing and this happens in Silicon Valley with the tech companies. The last thing you want to do is you've got this rock star team of executives coming over. They're enthusiastic and they're looking forward to cashing out their escrow. And then you've got the bad news of saying, sorry, there was a breach. We're taking all the money. And and there have been, quite frankly, dilemmas where the the company just says, do we really want to, you know, why don't we just take the hit? Because these guys are really good. And if you've got the rep and warranty, you don't have any defensiveness. You don't have any of that. And mm-hmm. so I, that's very important for especially the people coming coming on board. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely a tool that we leverage often. One, one of the other factors here, not to sound like a commercial too much, but <laughs> one of your factors was size of the deal. And there are some times where the cost doesn't justify, the expense doesn't ex- justify, you know, doing it on certain deals. And you do so many add-ons. What's yeah. a great development in the market now is the uh, emergence of a sell-side policy that essentially the seller purchases, the policy is triggered if there's a breach, the buyer just notifies the seller of the breach. Policy is triggered and responds and negotiates with the buyer so that they go go ahead and get get the claim settled and so forth. So the buyer gets, you know, that they're going to get made whole. So they've got assurance of collection without having to do it. Seller is now they relieve themselves of the cost of the liability. And these are available for add-ons priced between a million and 30 million in enterprise value. So it's fitting that nice little you know blind spot for rep and warranty where it should be more probably used on the larger deals. Indeed. So- I think that solves a huge, I would say vacuum in the market historically, Patrick, um, which is fantastic, right? Especially and- for a firm like ours that, that does two to three dozen at, um, add-on yeah. acquisitions a and, year. And, so. Yeah, and on top of that, I mean, at a cost of fifteen thousand to twenty thousand dollars per million in limits, you know, so you can insure something for a fraction of what a rep and warranty costs. But at that, I our experience right now has only been a year, but sellers are not only eager, they're giddy to be able to have that have that taken care of. I can imagine and why. So, so with this, let's let's talk about it real quick. Give us an idea of your ideal target. What is Huron Capital looking for right now? Well, so certainly um, within our sector focus. And so I mentioned uh, CNI services, professional services, and consumer services, but there are specific mm-hmm. sector niches beneath that, of course. So certainly within our sectors of interest, you know, I would say if it's a deal coming through the door from a referral source or we've been introduced to a company, you know, at least five to seven of EBITDA is sort of a sweet spot for us and um, founder owned, of course, somewhere where we have an angle where we have operating resources or can leverage existing knowledge or experience in that sector. Uh, certainly a fragmented market where there's a buy and build opportunity. That is that is something we look for every single time. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I mean, those are the key ones in secular trends. I mean, look, we're we're not, you know, turnaround folks. We're not trying to take a business and that's losing money and turn it into a profitable one. We're looking for businesses that are already in industries with um, with some secular tailwinds gotcha. and ones that are going to be around for a long time, that there's a reason for them to exist. And the beauty for that for us is that, you know, going into an uncertain economy, which I, I feel like uncertainty is the is the only word I know to describe mm-hmm. what we're in today. Mm-hmm. You know, our services businesses tend to be very mission critical. Mm-hmm. Um, we like highly technical, skilled labor in terms of the types of services that we offer. And and so those tend to be more resilient, non-discretionary, monetized. Yeah, they're non-discretionary. If you have, um, you know, if you have a fire alarm in your building, you know, there are regulations around how often you have to test that mm-hmm. and monitor it to make sure that it's working properly. And you know, that is recurring revenue that creates a lot of sustained and consistent profitability. And of course, private equity loves that dynamic, right? And so for us, if there's an opportunity to build a recurring revenue model, um, you know, to drive efficiency through route-based services or Mm multi-location, to drive some tech enablement and professionalization, as we talked about in the finance or in the management team, I mean, all of those things are are attributes that we look for in businesses uh, that we're investing in. Gotcha. And you were just so well segueing us into this, you know, next question. You mentioned uncertainty. I I ask all my guests, I mean, what trends do you see going forward? I mean, now we're looking at 2023, almost 2024, uh, when you think about this. And you've got all these macro headwinds out there that everybody's reading about. Do they apply to what your your area of focus and what do you see going forward, either Huron Capital or macro? However you yeah. want. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. And if you know we all had crystal balls, this you know this would be great, but we don't. Um, look, I mean I think we're 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 in a market that is uncertain, still with lots of capital, and 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 it's a job full market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some significant challenges like supply chain. Um, labor, inflation, rising interest rates. And, you know, I think we believe that the sectors we invest in and the companies that we have will be resilient in this, in the face of these types of challenges. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, our companies tend to have pricing power given how non-discretionary the services are, mm-hmm. are and the retention rates are high. And so, you know, we feel like if we're, if we're addressing the current market challenges, they can't go on forever. And yeah. so at some point, one something has got to give in terms of the job market, labor, or supply chain. And we can only benefit from that. Yeah. Um, even if revenue or demand is flat to slightly down, you know, we think that the activities that we have done to address those challenges in our businesses today will bear fruit in the future. You know, I, I will also say that I think. A little bit of uncertainty and is is a good thing for yeah. the market today. Um, we have been on a tear in terms of MA and recovery since the Great Recession. And sometimes it's nice to just take a little air out of the balloon. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been some silly multiples in certain industries, and sometimes they're, you know, they're well deserved, but in many cases they they aren't. And, you know, I think it's always not bad to see some normalization. 
on from a valuation perspective, and we all know rising interest rates will will help us will help us do that. I don't see us, you know, valuations cratering, but I do see some normalization and some folks taking a breath in terms of deploying capital after last year. And so, you know, A assets are are fine and are are probably doing okay. And you know, even with leverage slightly lighter, I think those businesses will continue to see good valuations, but. You know, I think the market is slow in the fourth quarter and folks are waiting. They're just yeah. waiting to see. And they're they're certainly pitching. Banks are pitching because they want to see and they want private equity firms and sellers want to be ready for when the market opens. You and I both know yeah. how quickly the market, you know, um, perception can change. And right when we feel like there's a sense that it's opening, I think we're going to see a flood of activity hit the market, whether that's the first, second or third quarter of next year. We'll find out. Would you think, and again, completely off scripted, but would you think that there's kind of a pause as we get through this fourth quarter? It's like, let's just see what things look like on the other side. Is there an element of that? 100%. 100%, both from the debt and the equity. I say, I think the debt markets are causing probably the most disruption, particularly mm-hmm. in the upper middle market. You know, 25 to 30 million in EBITDA and above has seen um, some dramatic volatility. And so, Lots of those lenders are just pencils down for the rest of the year, okay. waiting to see what happens. And, and, and deals of that scale and size that have financing in place that are willing to, you know, to stay in and, and refinance with a new buyer. Those are the those are the opportunities getting done right now. Okay. Um, but yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of stuff. And it, it's one of those where uh, there's a book called The Obstacle is the Way, where when we get th- some new challenge like the interest rates, you have changed your playbook. And sometimes that opens the door for more innovation. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're, just like when the tax laws changed a few years ago and we all rushed to better understand them and maybe sell companies ahead of a potential change. I mean, if we're nothing, if not adaptable yeah. to market, changing market <laughs> conditions, you know, we're all looking at interest rate hedging. You know, we haven't had to think about that for a decade, yeah. right? And so, you know, there are tools in the tool chest that we have all used before. It's time to sort of pull those out and and get creative. And, you know, that's what we're doing. Well, I, I mean, great insight on all this. Heather, how can our audience members find you in Huron Capital? Sure, absolutely. So to learn more about Huron, please go to our website, www.huroncapital.com. My name is Heather Madland. My email address is h. Madland, M-A-D-L-A-N-D at HuronCapital.com. Yeah, very, and it's a great intuitive new, new shiny website. So uh, <laughs> great for setting up. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware and sensitive to websites because we're uh, planning ours. So, oh, I'm it's excited. never, never an easy lift, but I'm, I am sporting the new, you know, Huron blue color here. So. Blue. If nothing, I'm I'm a champion of the new color. <laughs> Very good. Well, great. Well, Heather, thanks for being here today. And we're going to talk again. Patrick, thanks so much for having me. 